Welcome to the Mothers on the Frontline podcast and our special series, Between Friends. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, today, we're going to talk about allyship, um, moving from performativity to authenticity. Well, in the past, the topic of allyship seemed to be confined to social justice circles and diversity and inclusive seminars. It has now become a topic of late that we're discussing in the greater public. Um, How to be a good ally, the different types of allyship, the problematic demonstrations of allyship, such as performative allyship. And this has increasingly come up to discussion and with good reason um, from the pushback against hashtag activism to the safety pin campaign that arose from the 2016 election to our current discussions that we're having regarding the demonstrations of solidarity from companies like Amazon and Target with Black Lives Matter. More and more people are wondering what it means to be a good ally. As parents of children with mental health conditions, we have had to consider allyship in all its dimensions and what it means to be an ally in both our personal relationships how we align ourselves and how others align with us. And as co-founders of a children's mental health advocacy group, we've had to consider what it means to be an ally professionally and what that means in terms of aligning ourselves with other advocacy organizations and how they align with our cause. So today I thought it would be good if we just start talking about allyship in an area that's often overlooked, and that's in personal relationships. How does this work? How do we align ourselves? How do people align with us, particularly in our positions as mothers of children with mental health challenges um, in our personal relationships? Okay, um, this is Angela, and um, I wanted to talk about the the personal relationship aspect of allyship. you know, whether it's for me individually or for how um, friends, family, teachers, uh, friends of uh, or the parents of my friends, children, how do you um, confront and understand a situation that's going to be new to you? You might not have a child that has depression or anxiety or ADHD. Um, And in my case, I want to use some of my experience advocating for life-threatening food allergies. Um, One of our children has a life-threatening peanut allergy. And there's a lot of people, understandably, that have never had any experience with that. And there can be a lot of tension and misunderstanding um, and defensiveness when um, a parent is like, hey, I need certain things to happen in order to keep my child safe in environments that nobody else has to think about. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and I've had some positive experiences with people um, and I've had some really negative experiences as you can imagine. And if you've read any news articles about it, you know what the negative ones are. Um, But I want to focus on the people who have been really, uh, lovely and helpful and understanding. And I think that this applies to whether you've got a, um, a student in your classroom who has food allergies or a mental health issue or racism or any, any of the things that we could possibly talk about. Um, for me, when I've had a good experience with somebody, there are a few things that they do differently. One of the things, and it's, uh, it's like active questioning and it's examples like, what does that feel like? What can I do to help you? How can I do things differently to keep your child safe? Um, how does this affect you and your family relationships at work or even a sense of self? Um, and they actively listen to understand what I'm saying and not the, uh, people who listen to react and then get really defensive. It's 
and, and everybody's experienced this, right? You, you've had a topic of conversation where maybe it's controversial and you're trying to explain your experience and the person listening to you is already have these preformed ideas and they're listening so that they can figure out ways to defend their position. Um, that's in, and that's interesting because you're talking about like, and if you could talk more about that, the difference between curiosity over interrogation mm. and helping yes. versus inserting, right? Yes. Yes. That's good. Oh, a- absolutely. I mean, any of these topics, they're uh, they're really sensitive, and when you've got a situation where your child's life is in danger and people think a it doesn't exist that this isn't a real problem um or they get really defensive when you ask for you know even just sort of minor changes like hey could we just not have peanut at this uh, at this social gathering um or uh you know (sighs) Yeah, just let, let's just go with peanuts. I won't go. I won't go too far down. You know, some of the other roads there. But you know, can we just keep those 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 out of the family gathering or the school picnic? And then there are people who will just like flip out and feel like, oh my god, you're oppressing me because I can't bring a peanut butter sandwich. Or there will be people who are like, oh, oh, you know, they'll be like, okay, and they make that accommodation. And then there are people who are like, hey what can I do to make sure the food that I'm bringing is safe for your child? Um, And I think that's kind of like three layers of allyship. It's, it's the personal concern and what can I do to transform myself to make the situation um, safer and calmer and less anxiety and producing for, you know, everybody um, but so that everybody also can enjoy it and this not be like, oh, my God, there's no peanuts here. <laughs> um, and then, you know, there's the like, OK, I'll, I'll make that accommodation for you. But there's no more curiosity. And then there's the right. people who are like, you know, you're you're infringing upon me. Um, well, I kind of so I want to. To to. And also, we always have to remember that we're not in the same room, which is really hard. So I'm sorry for interrupting you <laughs> as you're That's talking. Okay. Um, but but you're, you're really hitting on these three layers of and, and it's funny because we're not funny. haha. But what you're talking about is the first one with the clear rejection and the pushback. That's clearly not allyship. Right. And then the second right. one is just sort of this acceptance. But I mean, there, there's the element of allyship where it does require the learning and unlearning, right? And then you, and making space and listening. And so this is what you, I hear you talking about in in what I call, you know, active curiosity, right? And Mm -hmm, active curiosity mm -hmm. is actively asking questions and then shutting up, right? And listening. But then it's this (laughs) third aspect that, that I don't think we even talk about a lot, um, you know, in, and I've, I've attended and I've actually conducted some seminars with allyship, but, and we don't really get into this third aspect as much as we probably should. And that's the making intentional decisions on how to act, right? So once you hear that, that, that someone who's coming to a family gathering, um, has a peanut allergy, I have a child who has celiac. And, and, you know, and I've had that similar experience where people have been like, okay, well, I don't know what he can eat or what he can't eat. And so there's everything, you know, don't touch anything on the table to, um, I have to bring, and I I make a habit of bringing my own things for him in particular. But I've also had parents who are like, well, what can we, how can we make this party inclusive for him? So that the cake that we have, or maybe we don't have cake one year, um, he went to a party and they had a Sunday bar. Right. And it was wonderful because he had things that he could choose from. Um, The other kids had things and they had a great time. And this was really the mother making an intentional decision on now how she was going to plan the party and plan the space to be inclusive. Um, And I, I think that that is a really fundamentally important part of of allyship so yeah i i agree can i jump in here yeah i um, yeah 
you guys are giving these great examples within a context of community, of friendship, and so on. I'd like to give an example of some of those layers with strangers, if that's okay. Because I think I definitely see that as, as having a child with severe mental health problems, which often, especially as he was younger, meant behaviors in public that other people didn't understand and sometimes were very concerned or frightened by. Right. Right. And um, so sometimes, I mean, there's obviously what is not being an ally, uh, which is like that denial stage you're talking about with, well, there's no such thing as peanut allergies. And those are the people who would honestly come up to me and say, if you just spanked your kid, he wouldn't behave that way because they just deny that there could be a health issue going on here. And this must be a parenting issue. Right. Um, right. As physically abusing your child would, would solve a parenting issue. I don't know. That's a whole other issue. But, um, but right. obviously not an ally. And then when I think um, of an experience that I've had and a lot of parents of children like mine have had this experience when you're in any kind of public transportation, it can be a really challenging um, any kind of transportation, whether it's on a bus or a train or an airplane, when you're sort of confined in a space with other people, especially if your child is triggered by that itself, right? Um, sensory right. Um, behaviors might come out and it can be a really challenging situation for the parent to n- take care of your child while mediating whatever other people's reactions are. And one layer, I think people think they're being an ally, but I, I don't know that I would call it being an ally, is simply tolerance, mm, right? Yeah. Um, and so there are, and I know many parents who've had ways to even just try to cultivate that. I mean, I've had cards for my son's Tourette syndrome that I would pass out if I get on a plane. You know, my son has Tourette's. This is what might happen. Sorry if it bothers you. It bothers him more. You know, like, <laughs> yes, yes. Some mothers, I think, that I've met are amazing because they get candy bar, like they order candy bars and they have all that printed on the wrapper. Wow. And they have mm-hmm. chocolate around them. And I'm like, that's just brilliant. You hand me a chocolate bar, I'll be quiet. That's just, can you just not make it worse when my right. son's in yeah. Right. Can you not blame me in sight and make it worse? But I had this experience, a hellish experience of which you're all going to just say, what the heck are you thinking? You're all right. Um, I took my two young sons across the country on a train. One of them with severe mental illness and autism and sensory issues. And so that was just dumb. Okay. Yeah, I got it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not judging. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. No, we we understand. yeah, the train ride would have been difficult for anyone. It was supposed to be a 72-hour ride and ended up being about double that because of a confluence of events, including someone died on the train. The train had to be stopped, to, which we didn't luckily know exactly what was happening at the time. That would have made it much worse for my son. Um, there was engine problems. So there was just like, it was just one of those trips that would be funny in a movie, but not in real life type of thing. Yeah. Um, so very stressful environment. And we, when we were getting off the train, my son was having a full mental health crisis. And it really was challenging for most of the ride as well. What had happened is there, there were a lot of people on the trains. Many were tolerating us. Many were just openly being saying horrible things and making everything worse. Um, but there was a nurse and a social worker. They were two friends traveling that happened to be on the train and they had our backs and they are allies. Mm-hmm. Like these were strangers. They not only helped us, like helped me navigate phone calls with my doctors of how can we stretch the medicine over safely for the 72 hours, like the medicine that he could have, like, like, so there was like that kind of help <laughs> from the nurse. Yeah. There was, yeah. There were things like, because he basically needed help to stay calm at all. And it was like an emergency situation. But what they did when we were leaving the train, we had people who were actively being hostile to us as we moved throughout the train. A woman got up and followed us. And the other woman got her body in front of all of us. So they put their bodies in between us and the people to get off the train. And when people would make hostile comments, they would shut them down. Wow. Wow. That is an ally. Yeah. yeah. I will yeah. be able to thank those two women. They have no idea what they did for me. Sorry. No. <laughs> That's it's, 
it's it's yeah. <laughs> i mean it's and it, and and when that happens and when we've had those moments and and we've all had those moments where at least those of us who are are you know parenting um you know children who who are going through severe and sometimes just you know challenges that people don't understand and then we've also had those moments where we've actually had the opportunity to do just that and and i think it's really important you know in in terms of allyship training we talk about this a lot we talk about allyship is standing in front of and that's that's in like you just said putting your body in between right um you yourself or what you and the person that you're um aligning with and and redirecting or even taking sort of 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 the the attention and then there's allyship um that's beside right and you're standing beside the person you're not directing it and you're not telling what should happen and you're not necessarily taking on the brunt of of all of the emotion or the action right um but you're there and and you're there to listen you are there to to um to deflect um and then there's the allyship that is support from behind and that happens in a in in a lot of different ways um from literally like you just said you you had somebody at your flank right who <laughs> was behind you yeah um but there's also the ways in which you you recognize and you support somebody in the best way you know you are that person that when i was in graduate school um and i'm gonna to give a shout out to lynn in graduate school because she was a graduate school ally i would call her i'm like this just happened to me and she would listen and i would talk and talk and talk and talk and talk you know sometimes to like 1 a.m in the morning right because i really needed somebody who I could talk to who was in my program with me, but not situated in the program in the same way. She's white. And, you know, sometimes things would happen. I'm like, I really believe that this is what this is about. Right. And I need to talk mm -hmm. to somebody to to really try to process. And she was right there processing. And she always asked that question that I think is really important for anybody who's thinking about engaging in these relationships. What can I do to help? How can I help? Not telling me yes. what I need to do. You know, it's not like I talked yes. to her and she's like, well, the first thing you need to do is you need to walk in the office. You need to demand this. You need to do it's what can I do? How can I best help you in yes. this at this time or in this scenario? And I think that's a, a, a key aspect of, of allyship. What do y'all think? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. That's like one of the things I have like written down as these are the things you can do to be a good ally. And that question of what can I do to help or what helps you in this situation and and not giving the advice, right? Because that's really not what you, you need in that situation because you really do probably have a good idea of what you need to do, but you just need somebody to listen to you to like get that frustration out. And then when you're like, hey, what do I do? What do you think? Then that's a good time to give the advice. And, um, you know, one of the things that we work on at Mothers on the Front Line also in the, the allyship space is the importance of shared lived experience, right? Mm -hmm. There's a there's yes. a different there's a different intimacy in those relationships. And everybody has that experience where you've been through something and you share these experiences with people who haven't been through it and they can be empathetic to a degree but it's not the same until you get in a space with people who get it, who you mm -hmm. don't have to explain all of the ins and outs. And, and, and you can just really have that sigh of relief, like, hey, I'm in a yeah. space where people get it. And Does that make sense? It totally yeah. makes sense. And you, you, you hit it head on. It's not only that you don't have to explain, you don't have to convince. Right. Yes. <laughs> 
Yes, they both convincing. <laughs> yes, yes. And, that, and, and that's a that's a big part of it because you know that like when we're going out and advocating for our children, and let's just say it's in schools, right? There is this level of I have to convince the teachers that that you know it that are writing that are you know in charge of the IEP, the principal, the other parents that my child has a legitimate problem that you all need to help with, and that is exhausting to constantly have to prove your validity with the health and well-being of your child. No, I, I, and I think that this is, this is really important, right? Because this is where it, it, it gets very complex in terms of being an ally and it gets mushy because mm-hmm. of what you're talking about is the need to, when you're in a situation where you need to actually convince people, you got to give effective testimony to your own experience in order for those people to actually feel like they can align with you. I'm going to push back and say that mm-hmm. that's not an allyship situation at all, because that's to be oh, an yeah. ally means that you are actively and consistently practicing learning and unlearning, right? You're reevaluating mm-hmm. your positionality, mm-hmm. particularly vis-a-vis power and your power and privilege, right? And so right. if you're in a situation where you're actually requiring somebody, and that's it's a good check because I, I'm not the only person, and I'm not saying that it, it's singular out. I've been guilty of this too, where I start, again, mm-hmm. that difference between curiosity and interrogation. Mm-hmm. And when it starts to, and we talk about mm-hmm. this in Mothers on the Front Line a lot, is when you start to feel like you're interrogated, it's when people are asking you and peppering you, like, when did your child get sick? How did you understand that? What happened? And you start to get in that, 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 that feeling of like anxiety and anger starts mm. to, because you, you actually feel like information is being extracted from you and not extracted from you so that a person can understand more. You know, I want to often say, read a book. Here's a book. <laughs> like, what exactly is ADHD? Here's a list of things that you can read yes. because it's actually not my job in the middle of parenting my child um, or even as a black woman in the middle of navigating race and racism in America to educate you about what that means. You are exactly. not my ally if that's what my job is yes. in this relationship. Yes. So I think it's important yeah. well, to, to, to point that out. You yeah, absolutely. It, it, and, and, but, you know, the, the problem is that there are these relationships that we have to have and we need them to be allies with us. But instead, we're having to do this convincing mm-hmm. and being interrogated and, and receiving this judgment. Because one of the things you get a lot, whether, you know, especially in the children's mental health space, and particularly as a mother, is what did you do to make them like this? Yeah. You know, there is the, there is the, I mean, particularly on the mother, like, you're, you're the cause of all of this. And, um, whether that is actually true or not. Obviously, there are some situations where, you know, the parent is, but a whole lot of times it's, it, it's not. There's a confluence of things. And, um, and, and, and that's really hard. I mean, and that is that, that interrogating and inserting and judgment is the opposite of allyship. And it helps nobody. Nobody. And I think it's common, right? I mean, so like children's mm-hmm. mental health—it's happened it's so salient to us in that that lived experience. But I've heard other people explain that experience with other kinds of lived experiences and identities, where one, they're not believed when they say something mm-hmm. happened, mm-hmm. whether they, you know, yeah. describe a racist incident or an ableist incident or a heteronormative you know, normative incident that happened to them. And then the second piece is the listener will say, well, what did you do wrong to get that right. reaction from? Right. You right. must have done something, right? Yeah. It's a thing that we, as parents here, you must have done something wrong if your kids have that illness. Well, if the police chased you, you must have done something wrong. Right. You, you see what yeah. I'm saying? It's yeah. more of that yeah. mentality across the board. That's a problem. Yeah. There is a difference. And I, I, I think that, that, 
what we experience and what you're talking about is there's a difference between um, the of empathy, right? And, and, and versus mm-hmm. judgment. And sometimes, and again, I know that I've been guilty of this myself, where I'm actually trying to figure out, I think I'm trying to help somebody problem solve. And sometimes that, that mm-hmm. I, I know, for instance, particularly if I am in a level, if I'm working and I have to watch out for this in a professional capacity, right? So if I have students who come to me and to talk to me and they're talking to me as professor, right? And they're, they're talking about something that happened with another professor or in a class or something that's happened that sort of requires me to kind of sit in that weird space between my institutional role and what I personally believe, I know then I really slip into mm-hmm. it. And I start, and I what I think I'm doing is helping them problem solve, right? So we have to get at the root of it. And then I get at the root of it, then I situate myself in a position of, again, judging and interrogating, right? So what happened? So mm. did you turn the paper in late? How often have you been turning in papers late, right? Because then if it's just about right. late papers, then it's not about what the student is is really trying to express. And then in those moments, that's when I really have to check myself personally um, as an ally yeah. and check the way in which I'm asking questions. And did I ever offer true empathy? I am sorry that this has happened to you. I am Mm-hmm. You know, what can we do? Can, would you like to tell me about what happened? Um, and and what can I do to help? Or even admitting, I don't even know much about this. And I need to, actually, I want to learn more. But what I can do right now is listen. Right. And and it's, 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 yes. it's a hard, you know, it's not, a, it's not a hard and fast line. And I think we all kind of, of of slip into these elements of, of you know, judging and not being empathetic. But there's another aspect yes. that came up in prior conversations that we had that had to do with performative allyship. So, like, you know, putting mm-hmm. – and I don't know if anybody's had this experience of the juxtaposition mm-hmm. of somebody who's actually performing, like, had the pin on, but then – they're like doing exactly the opposite of what being an ally would be yes. in that scenario. Yes. Mm-hmm. We've, I mean, and I think we've all had those sorts of experiences. You know, you see all of the the signs up for whether, you know, it's Black Lives Matter or, um, you know, science or, you know, you, the one that's got kind of the rainbow of things of like, you know, we we love everybody, blah, blah, blah. Right. right? And I see those things or or like even in a church, we welcome everybody. Right. For me, anyway, I kind of take that with a cautious optimism, Mm -hmm. like, great, this is really nice. But let's see what you put into action, not just kind of like the window covering to be like, hey, look at me. I love all of these people. But how do you um, treat people and do things? When nobody's looking, right? Like, what what policies have you changed internally? What work have you done to, like, actually do anti-racism work, which is very different than saying, you know, Black Lives Matter, right? right. That's easy. That like, can, and, and, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say I can give an example of this with how I've been feeling since COVID nineteen, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been mm-hmm. really interesting to watch how all these things are possible all of a sudden in the context of a pandemic that we've been being told for years were not possible, whether it was for accommodations for our children who have disabilities or other scenarios, right? And in, in my case, right. I can think accommodations my child needed because of his dysgraphia or other issues that we could not get in the schools even though they would give all the lip service to caring about him and inclusion and all this stuff. But then all of a sudden COVID hits and everyone's able to do all their learning on a computer and everyone's able to get certain access to things. You see what I'm saying? And and, and that mm-hmm. wasn't possible a year ago for this particular issue for my child, for instance. Right. And you're like, what is that? Um, 
so I, I, I don't know. I've been seeing a lot of examples with COVID, although at the same time where I'm located, you know, while there's been a lot of work on making sure that children who aren't in special ed were getting learning at home, there was absolutely nothing provided for our special ed kids where I live right. for online right. learning. So, I mean, there again, they were out, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes, and, and I hear that from a lot of people um, across the country, just, you know, different friendships that I have with people who have children who have different needs. And they're, you know, they're like, this is horrible for our kids. You know, like this is this is really hard in the services that they've needed to, you know, keep their children advancing and learning and healthy are now no longer possible. And even within the, you know, like the legislative action where, you know, they, they're like, oh, we got to make all of these changes for schools. There was nobody allowed or brought in from a special education standpoint. And so if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Right. And, and so there, so that, that's also like, Hey, we're, we're, we're doing all this work, but it's performative because it doesn't include everybody or go far enough. Well, if that makes sense. I think that it's, it, it, it's also another example of what happens when we're not conscious and making intentional decisions with our, um, how we align and in mm-hmm. our political decision making and how we even go about creating our decision making spaces. And so what happens in, in the case is that especially, I mean, you know, special education, uh, parents who have children, um, in special education are often overlooked as part of the whole decision making process. Like, you know, a, I've, I've had it where mm-hmm. I've been placed on, cause I have four kids and I have kids that are across the ranges of ability and I've been asked to be on the general, right? Um, curriculum development committee, right? But then we want to have a subcommittee for parents or children, um, who are in special education. And I've often said, why do we need a subcommittee of parents or children? <laughs> Yeah. In special education. Why can't we be at the right. table? Why, Why do, do we get, get the kids? And so I think that yes. this is, and, and this is mm-hmm. replicated, not just in, in educational settings, it's replicated in subcommittees of diversity and inclusivity at colleges and universities, in which then you have a whole committee, but then the subcommittee is really going to do these special um policy directives that then we have to take back to the general committee. And basically what that is, it's not allyship. It's not even good, in my opinion, good policy making. It is a continuation of marginalizing um, groups that are already marginalized within these greater conversations. And so I think that as an organization, and I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about that, like Tammy, like how we have as an organization really had to think about inclusivity, but also what inclusivity means organizationally, not just as a subcommittee in terms of allyship, but how this actually should transform the way in which you go about not only setting up your organization, the policies that you espouse, but how you speak. And then how you then can make decisions, right? Um, organizationally, if you take this directive of being an effective ally seriously. Yeah, no, I, there are a few things that I'd like to say about that. I mean, one is this example you gave of having subcommittees, right? It, the other effect of that is it puts all the responsibility for dealing with that issue on the very people who are suffering from that issue. And so we always see this, like in academic spaces, we see this with black colleagues. They're the ones who are supposed to solve the race problem in the college, right? Um, we certainly see it. I mean, I feel this as a mother of a child with mental illness. Um, you know, I, I get people calling me in terms of policy or legislation here, I need you to fix this right now. And I'm like, right now, my child's in a mental health crisis. I can't attend to you right now. But if we had everyone on the committee caring about this issue, I wouldn't have to carry that issue on my own. Right. Right. So I think that's a piece of that kind of throwing things to subcommittees as though they're not general issues. Right. 
And, and I think that's a problem. It's a problem in our school structures when we only expect the special ed teachers to talk about how to run IEPs. Well, all of our kids on IEPs are dealing with gen ed teachers. The gen ed teachers have to be part of that conversation. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? So it's a structural problem that needs to be changed. So that's one kind of issue. Um, the other issue is to be an ally as an organization, you have to integrate that issue into what you're doing, right? And so one of the things I love about the work we're doing at Mothers on the Frontline, and I think differentiates us, honestly, from other mental health advocacy organizations that I've seen. I, I do see these discussions out there about disproportionality of access to care, and that's important, whether it's in terms of race or LGBTQ community or poverty or, you know, geography, rural versus urban, right? Those are important conversations I see everyone having. But the conversation of how the the differential ways people are treated in society affects their Mm -hmm. mental health to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't always a conversation. And I'm really, so to say that we, we ally with, you know, things like Black Lives Matter and, and movement for Black lives and, and anti-racism in general means we can't just as mothers in the front line care about pointing out those differentials in access to care. We also have to point out how is racism hurting the mental health of our children? Like it has to be integral yes. to the whole conversation, right? Um, if we're going to go to an event, we're going to be talking about autism and autism advocacy. We have to talk about what about those kids where autism intersects with blackness and their particular challenges in dealing with the police. Because all autistic children have challenges dealing with the police, right? Well, what does it look like for people of various identities, right? Um, so I think part of being an ally, an, an ally and not just in coalition right. with. Right. And I think those different mean a kind of integration of an issue holistically into what you're doing. Same. I, I think that. I mean, it's yeah, more about that because I think that in, in the different dimensionalities, uh, the other thing is there's certain sloppiness in, in and it's a necessary sloppiness, too, right now, because we're trying to figure it out as a society and groups are trying to figure it out. But we tend to say ally when we might mean coalition partner or we tend to say ally. Yeah. Or we tend to say friend, right, in a personal sense, when actually what it is is an ally space. And so I, I say more about like the differences, like coalition and, and allyship. And you said one thing is allyship. When you're in allyship, and, and we talked about this when we started doing the work on school to prison pipeline, and we started to really look at incarcerality and mental health and aligning with organizations like Black Lives Matters and Black Lives Matters um, um, campaigns like Black Lives Matter in school was really about also what you're saying is transforming the way in which we approach everything, right? And how we look and how we approach um, our organization from the foundations through to the products that we actually, um, not products, but through our action. So I don't know if you wanted to talk more about that. Um, So one of the things I would want to insert here is a concept that we've been talking about um, for years at Mothers in the Frontline and a a term that I coined um, for a phenomenon that we've all experienced um, called stigma jumping. And stigma Mm. jumping can happen both in coalitional spaces and in allyship spaces. And and so I think it, it, it applies to both. The way I define would define it is stigma jumping is avoiding association with either potential allies or potential coalition partners to avoid their stigma being attached to your cause, organization, or person. And so sometimes when we're doing work, um, whether it's nonprofit work or activism or what have you, what we find is people might um, avoid talking about certain issues, um, working together on certain issues because they're afraid it's going to harm their cause. And so they're willing to just jump over that other group stigma and avoid them um, rather than take it on with them. And so I'll give some examples. I first encountered this when I first began doing disability advocacy in the, in the disability advocacy community itself. And I noticed there were some really interesting tensions among different groups, whether you were working on children's mental health or intellectual disability or physical disability. 
um, when I was working on some Medicaid waiver issues, I was surprised how much this would come up. And I've heard this in the mental health community too. So we're all doing it. It's a problem. But when you hear people say, well, we're not going to work on that issue because our children are mm -hmm. smart, right? They don't have intellectual disability or, well, our children might have intellectual disability, but they're not. And then they'll use the C word crazy. Oh, wow. Right. 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 Which is horrible. Mm -hmm. Like they'll say or, you know, well, I, you know, my kid, you know, has a physical disability. They're not wrong in the head. So we're not going to talk to you. I mean, these are horrible mm -hmm. things I in the disability mm -hmm. community. Okay. Right. This idea of we're not partnering with you because it will make our kids look bad. It will make our cause look bad. Um, so we're not going to partner, even though it's an organic, it would be an organic partnership because we're fighting on a, the same kind of issue like right. Medicaid waivers or something. Right. So, so that would be an example of it, but it happens in other spheres as well. And in between uh, various groups, like we also saw this when we're working on school to prison pipeline issues with mothers on the front line, because it means coalitioning among anti-racist groups, disability rights groups, um, LGBTQ groups, all these different groups coming together because unfortunately it is a salient issue for so many different groups of people. And what really concerns me about stigma jumping is what happens then is it's the, in our case, children that we focus on who, whose lived experience are at the intersections mm -hmm. who are lost because no one's fighting for them. Right. 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 You have some groups for this aspect of their identity and some groups fighting for this aspect of identity, but that, I don't know, let's say a trans black child with autism is lot no one's right. fighting for that right yeah and so yeah. this i think is when we're either if we're coalitioning which i would define as you're coming together because there's some kind of overlap of a particular interest you can mm -hmm. work on together right mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. or whether it's an allyship where we're going to holistically take on each other's issues and fight for each other and stand with each other right and transform our organizational structure, activity, the way we think, the way we proceed to stand with you. That would be One of the things you're, you're, you're pointing yeah. out is, and I think it's really important to, to, to you know, um, to make sure we mention this, is that allyship as a different from coalition building, even like expressing solidarity, like solidarity movements and things like that. Um, is really a mindset right and 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 once you move into the mindset of being an ally or being an allyship um it requires you to not only examine your own positionality vis-a-vis -vis privilege right but also where you sit these um in positions of power right and 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 where you sit next to power and I think that that is the probably the transformational aspect of it is while it's not an identity, like I can't be like, oh, I'm an ally and then like, you know, bathe myself in, in like rainbow colors because I'm an ally. And can't you see that's not it's not <laughs> in a position that is an identity, but it is a mindset that requires that kind of interrogation. Um, and when you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, um, one of my kids has um, was diagnosed with a form of pediatric MS, and and it's it's it could be a, a singular point in time. By the time they are you know um, twenty one, twenty two, if there are no more kind of relapses, then it's it's considered to be a one off. But it could be also a lifelong thing. And when I was in the um, in the parenting education part of it, you know, I had a class. And one of the things that I noticed was depression is is a a symptom. And depression is a serious issue for people who have MS. It's a neurological condition, so it makes sense. And I mentioned this mm -hmm. to one of the parents. I was like, oh well, does your child um have depression or something? And you know, I had my card for mothers on the front line. She's like, oh no, no. He does, mm -hmm. but he doesn't have depression because he has depression. He has depression. It's the MS. It's not. There's nothing wrong with him mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. um, and so mm -hmm. I don't see where this overlaps yes. at all. It's not the same thing. And it's like depression is depression. Um, it's not neurologically <laughs> mm -hmm. mm -hmm. or as a medical condition, oh, cool. like segmented 
because somebody has uh, uh, depression with MS or diabetes, it's depression. And so that was one of the times that it really hit me that it's like, oh, no, don't sit next to me. <laughs> don't. I don't want your card. I don't want to talk. Exactly. Um, well, and. And, you know, we've talked about this, too, especially in the sort of spaces where I am a lot, where physical illness uh, also has aspects of mental illness, like as the symptom, as, you know, as you were saying, where like anxiety and depression are um, huge within these communities, but they're not talked about as a, a sort of natural um symptom of what's going on, whether it be because there's uh, something physiological going on with the the person and the illness, but also because there are so many other like social and interpersonal and societal um, implications when you have any sort of serious illness, whether it's food allergy or MS or rare gastrointestinal disease you name it, these things have effects on relationships. And this in turn has effects on your mental well-being. And one of the things I say all the time to the people that I talk with is, I wish that when your child got a serious diagnosis, that there was a prescription for the individual and the family to have therapy and or some other psychological uh, medical services, because we ignore it and it exacerbates the actual medical condition. And I, you know, and I don't think that we need to be, you know, like, oh my gosh, the stigma jumping that Tammy was talking about, that's not my kid. You know, there's nothing wrong with my child. This is just EMS. Yeah if that uh, makes any sense. So, you know, here's, here's what I'm hearing. And, and, you know, we're, we're about to run out of time as we always, I mean, we could talk about this and a myriad <laughs> of other things. Um, but, you know, one of the things that, that, or several of the things that I think that we really want to highlight in, in terms of allyship um, and what's important for me what I hear in our conversation is curiosity um, and doing your own work, right? The, the mm. importance of empathy um, and, yes. and actually just asking, how can I help or how can I be um, a best help? And, you know, one of my students wrote uh, a, a really nice in, in the presentation that um, they gave for my intro to um, feminist and gender studies class, gender sexuality studies. Sorry, I want to get the title right. Um, and they're like, direct this to remember as an ally is to sit down, shut up and listen. <laughs> That's the first thing. <laughs> like, don't just sit <laughs> down and, and listen. And as you listen, and then I said, you can offer mm. empathy. You can ask um, questions without interrogating. And so I don't know, as, as we wrap up, is there anything that, that you all want to add or you want to say? Um I think I think that that's really good because when when I was sort of, you know, thinking of all of this and, you know, one of the things I think we also forget as individuals and groups is that we've all been at the beginning of the learning process, right? We've all, you know, we were not born anti-racist or uh, understanding food allergies or disabilities, right? And we have to also, as as best we can, be empathetic to the people who we need to help bring along the journey with us and have some understanding that we, when we look back, we used to be back there too. And, and allow and know that along the way, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to say things and you'll be like, oh my gosh, how did, how did that come out of my mouth? Right. And so I think from, from an individual standpoint to be kind to yourself and to be kind to others as you're learning, but remember again, the curiosity, the helping and the empathy, and that just really goes a long way and a little humility with, 
your ability to say, crap, I made a mistake. So that's where I would end it. I like that. And I, I would say I'm certainly, I have not arrived. I'm constantly making mistakes. (laughs) And, and, um, so the humility and the curiosity are really important. One thing I would add that I have found very helpful in my moments of crisis where true allies have stepped forward is not only have they asked what I needed, but sometimes they would offer specific things that they knew they were capable of giving. And um, I think that's really useful. And I think that's especially useful for people. I've had many, you know, students and others come and tell me, and and actually this is an issue for us. We, I think we were going to talk about, and we never got to it. It's another episode, but as, um, Parents as caregivers, right? Um, yeah. Many of us be allies to what's going on mm-hmm. now and can't, right? Like for various reasons, maybe we have an immunosuppressed yeah. child or person in the home we're caring for. Um, maybe you know for various reasons we can't do what we want to do. Maybe we want to be out in the streets protesting and we can't. Um, I've had students, you know, for various reasons want to be involved but can't be in the obvious ways. We can think about what are my special skills that I can contribute, right? So is it, well, I am a great cook, and you guys know that's not true of me, but I'm being theoretical. <laughs> like, imagine I'm a great cook. Well, maybe I can cook something for you while I know your child's in the hospital or so you don't have to worry about it. You know, whatever. Uh, I can offer a specific thing I know I can do. And I think that's true both personally for personal allies um, that we're trying to help, but also organizationally and movement and movement space. What What do I have I can particularly offer you at this moment? Um, not just asking you what you need and putting right. it on you to figure it out, um, but also here's something you can take or leave it, but I'm offering it right now. I, I think that's another thing I, I've learned to appreciate. I think that, that is a wonderful point. Absolutely. And, and that's a wonderful point to end on. And before we end, I do want to thank Sonia, Sophie, Gigi, and Lila from my fall 2019 introduction to feminism, gender, and sexuality studies class because their presentation on Allyship 101 really opened my eyes and it taught me a lot, especially about performative allyship. And it taught me a lot about the ways that I can be a better ally, um, particularly to my students. So thank you to them. Thank you for listening to Mothers on the Frontline, copyrighted in 2020. The music is Old English, written and performed by Flame Emoji. For more podcasts related to children's mental health justice, go to mothersonthefrontline.com or subscribe to Mothers on the Frontline on iTunes, Android, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. If you'd like to support our work, please make a tax-deductible donation on our website.